What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, stocks gave up their early gains as Ukraine appears to be suffering a cyber attack. But we climbed back into positive territory and we're trying and failing to stay there right now. The S&P is about 1% off of its January intraday lows. So are those lows safely in or not? Plus, as more sanctions get issued, Russia will do one thing that the West can and should prepare for. That's according to one of our next guests. We'll talk about what it is and what makes it so dangerous. And China headwinds for BABA, post-COVID questions for Moderna, and will pent-up demand be a catalyst for Live Nation? We'll tackle those three names in earnings exchange today. But let's start with the state of play here, Dom Chu, with our market. I cannot wait to get out and do stuff later on this year. I I have pent-up demand. So that's probably the reason why I believe that those companies may or may not do well. But anyway, the markets overall are in red territory because, Kelly pointed out before, we did see gains earlier in the session. But again, the momentum has come out and we did test try to test some of the lows that we saw yesterday with regard to the S&P 500. But right now, the Dow Industrials down about one quarter of one percent, about 74 to 75 points. The S&P 500, 42.84, the last trade there, off about one half of one percent. And the Nasdaq Composite continues to be that focal point for some of the out and under performance. It's off about three quarters of one percent, 100 some points, 13,277, the last trade there. By the way, for the S&P, this does push it back into that so-called correction phase where we're at about 10 to 11 percent below record highs. The Nasdaq, at least the Nasdaq 100, those biggest stocks, roughly about 18% below their record. So keep that in mind. The outperformers of the day, far and away, energy, maybe not shocking there. WGI crude has been just about flat on the day, but it's seen a pretty wide range in trading so far. Same with World Benchmark Ice Brent crude futures, $91.99 for U.S.-based crude. World Benchmark, $96.70. Chevron and Devon Energy, among some of the exploration and production companies, moving higher in today's trade. And the ETFs that track them are up as well. So watch the energy complex. And then the worst performing stock in the S&P 500 is a retailer. But it's not luxury, it's off price. We're talking TJX companies off 4.5%. This is the parent company of TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Home Goods, off-priced retail. Those stocks are, have been a huge focus during the pandemic for that return shopping phase. But TJX companies reported earnings and revenues that both fell shy of analysts' expectations. Its current quarter guidance was also below some analysts' consensus. And the company has suffered again because of squeezing profit margins. They're paying more for freight costs. They're paying more for labor. They can't keep stuff on the shelves because of supply chain issues. So TJX company is one of those stocks today that is catching a lot of attention as the worst performer in the S&P on earnings this morning. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thanks. Stocks have been broadly sliding deeper into correction territory as the Russia-Ukraine crisis continues to rattle markets. All three indices, about a percent and a half from those January 24th lows. Are we headed back there? Let's ask Charlie Bobrinskoy. He's vice chairman and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. And I know you love being, uh, you know, nailed down on on day-to-day moves, Charlie. But in all seriousness, what do you make of the market strength here and and the kind of trading that you anticipate in the coming months? Yeah, I think the market is looking to history and saying that international crisis, um, Iran problems, 
Libya problems, Syria, whatever, the market has been able to rise through them. And, and the market is hoping that this is going to be temporary. Obviously, if everybody calms down and Russia ends up taking control of two eastern provinces of the Ukraine, you know, that won't economically have that big an impact. So that is what the market is hoping. I hope the market is right. I'm not sure it is, but that is why the market is resilient. Would you change your strategies at all if we go back below the lows or if we hold them? And, you know, does that make a difference to you? You know, it's very important when we talk about the lows and the market. We have such a strange market right now with the S&P 500 still being dominated by large cap tech stocks, which can perform very differently. I mean, this is our value stocks, which you and I talk about all the time, mm -hmm. are killing these tech stocks this year. And so I'm not uh, overly concerned about the S&P being down 10% because my stocks are not down 10% and my stocks I don't think are going down 10%. But if I own a lot of no earnings, high growth, high multiple stocks, I think we can go a lot lower. What about Viacom CBS? So you guys always bring this up. Um, it has obviously been painful. That is uh, a name that we still think has a great library. We think it's got a, a good year coming up. Paramount Plus is actually growing. But the last earnings report, they indicated a desire or willingness to spend billions of dollars on new programming. That's always tough. So it's not going to generate the kind of cash that we had hoped. I still think it's cheap here, but I got to admit, we never love when a company changes its strategy. Sure. And I think, you know, again, I point that one out, just kind of uh, the, the one that doesn't make your point. Um, but the rest for the value versus tech trade, I think people are trying to figure out if that's worth chasing right now or if the market itself is worth chasing right now. You know, we're facing headwinds like inflation that even though that can be kind of a discouraging thought, even for companies that might have pricing power or what have you. I mean, it just it makes people feel maybe there's no alternative, but they don't feel great about holding on to a lot of these names. No, you're absolutely right. And I don't believe me, I, I'm not saying that the overall stock market can't go down because inflation causes higher interest rates and higher interest rates tend to punish growth stocks, which are overweighted in the S&P 500. So I, I'm not trying to paint a picture that the broad market can't go down. I do think value stocks that trade at very reasonable multiples, Goldman Sachs trading at 1.3 times book, uh, our beloved Mosaic and Apache trading at six and five times earnings, there are lots of Borg Warner, which makes uh, electrical uh, car powertrains trading at nine times earnings. There are a lot of great companies that are going to be fine, but I don't want to deny the point that higher interest rates, higher interest rates are not great for stock. Should people be picking through the rubble of the tech stocks? You know, has that bubble popped past tense or is it still popping? It is absolutely still popping and has a long way to go in these companies that aren't making any money. I mean, to me, there are two areas of the market that are really overpriced, and that is still bonds, which have a long way down to go in value, and then no earnings uh, tech stocks. The, the late stage venture world, those there are names of companies that would have done rounds of financing at $300 million, $400 million valuations that are now doing valuations at $2 billion. That area still has a long way to go down. There are a lot of small cap NASDAQ stocks that are making no money there is, there's no bottom there. Those names can go down a lot from here. And finally, what about the mega cap names, which have seen volatility uh, befitting their smaller colleagues at this point, but are often looked to literally as value names, as almost technology staples? Yeah, so the name that um, Apple is the name that comes up the most on this 
Warren Buffett owns it. My kids yell at me for missing it uh, as a stock. It, it clearly you can make the argument that Apple is a value stock. I think it's a lot harder to make that argument for Tesla at its valuation. Um, and then there are the smaller names that I, that I don't want to call out that have no profits, that have never made money, that are trading at, at um, $500 billion valuation. So um, this, there's still a lot of froth in the growth world. All right. Fair enough. A warning and also some places to look for opportunity this year. Charlie, great to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Kelly. Charles Babrinskoy with Ariel Investments. Let's turn to Rick Santelli now for the results of the five-year auction. We just heard uh, what Charlie thought about bond yields here. How'd that auction go over? Let's get to Rick with the numbers. Rick? It went over quite well, actually. It's 53 billion five-year notes, Kelly. 1.88% at the auction. It just tailed a smidge. It was around 1.882 in the when-issued market. But that demotion or that degrade to the grade is small compared to the other big positives. We see that the indirect bidders most associated with foreign buyers, well, that was the second best since September 2017. Last auction was the best. So there's a recent trend of foreigners really stepping up to the plate. But the category that really captured my imagination on this and garnered it an A- minus was that only 13.8% was leftovers for the dealers to take down. That's the smallest amount in my 20-year database, and it speaks volumes that even though yields are up today, even though yields were up yesterday, when stocks are down and geopolitics is running hot, 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 you can still find plenty of buyers at the right price in these auctions. Back to you. Well said, Rick. Thank you, Rick Santelli. Let's meanwhile get a check on some of the names that are most sensitive to those Russia-Ukraine tensions. Oil, gold, palladium, all holding steady. But the VanEck Russia ETF, the RSX, has fallen below $20 to its lowest level in 16 months as tensions rise. Kayla Tausche is at the White House with the latest this hour. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Kelly. Ukraine is expected to enter a state of emergency that would see document checks, gathering bans and curfews for its citizens. This as several Ukrainian government websites have suffered a new series of cyber attacks, which the White House is now calling consistent with the type of activity Russia would carry out in a bid to destabilize Ukraine. The world is now awaiting Russia's next move now that its entrance into Ukraine's breakaway regions has been met with sanctions from the West. And on those sanctions, a senior administration official acknowledging the U.S. penalties, targeting two banks, five oligarchs and capital markets access, don't pack the entire punch, saying, quote, this is the beginning of an invasion and this is the beginning of the U.S. response. If Putin escalates further, we will escalate further using both financial sanctions and export controls. The U.S. is expected to soon unveil sanctions on the parent company of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, delivering a final blow to the pipeline that would have doubled the amount of gas flowing from Russia to Germany. And as these measures are unveiled, Kelly, there is a cleave forming among global governments. Switzerland, for its part, is working to ensure that the country is not used as a safe haven or a workaround for individuals or companies targeted by these sanctions. China's foreign ministry asked today how that country is working to alleviate tensions in Ukraine, called the U.S. an irresponsible and immoral culprit of the tensions. Kelly? Wow. All right, Kayla, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Kayla Tausche. As Russia weighs its next move in the region, experts are warning that state-sponsored disinformation campaigns are being weaponized to change public opinion across the region. For more now, I'm joined by Molly Saltzkog. She's senior intelligence analyst at the Sufan Group. Molly, it's great to have you. What, what's the expectation now? We've seen some of these cyber attacks in Ukraine already today. 
Thanks for having me, Kelly. Yeah, um, the cyber attacks, and as you mentioned, um, the utilization of disinformation campaigns by Russia are all part of what is commonly referred to as phase zero of any type of invasion um, from Russia. And it's really laying the groundwork for that to be followed by any military or kinetic action. So if that's phase zero, then how many phases are there and what does the next one look like? Well, um, as we heard from the previous reporting, um, that um, there has now been sanctions imposed by the Biden administration in close coordination with our Western allies um, in the UK and uh, the European Union, and now uh, seeing whether Putin will escalate or de-escalate. The Biden administration made it very clear that this is just the beginning. Um, and I think an important point to note here is that these sanctions were closely coordinated with our allies. And this is showing Western resolve and Western coordination and commitment uh, to deterring Russia, to raise the cost for Russia with these sanctions. And this is not only closely watched by Russia and Moscow and the Kremlin and Mr. Putin himself, but also other strategic adversaries like China. Sure. The Department of Defense uh, just had a briefing with reporters. Uh, senior defense officials said Ru Russia is as ready as they can be. They have 80 percent in forward positions ready to go. They are literally ready to go now. They have brought in nearly 100 percent of all the forces we anticipated he would need for a large scale invasion. Ten landing ships in the Black Sea with troops on board. Everything ready for a large scale invasion. And the belief continues to be that that is his goal. So it doesn't sound like sanctions are doing much to deter the next step here. Well, uh, the Biden administration have been strategic and smart in that they didn't go full out on all the sanction options available, but they are uh, slowly raising the cost. Now, again, uh, the, we can evaluate the effectiveness of sanctions, but uh, the point is that this will be costly uh, for uh, Russia in the long term. Um, but also, I think it's very important, uh, Kelly, to note that actually um, there are repercussions for these sanctions on, on a Western market, too. Sure. Um, there will be long-term economic effects uh, that may uh, impact Western companies. But also in the short term, both the UK and the US have gone out and said that private sector companies in the West may be increasingly targeted by cyber attacks. Hmm. So this is the moment where Western private companies and private sector should really ready their cyber defense capabilities uh, against Russian attacks. And, uh, and that is very important to, to note. Absolutely critical, like to your point. I guess just a final question on Nord Stream 2. How vital is that pipeline to Russia? And do you think that it is at this point uh, a non-starter? Well, uh, Nord Stream 2 has been a, a contentious point uh, in rallying European allies, specifically Germany, uh, to deter Russia. And uh, it was heartening to see that the chancellor of Germany uh, put it on hold uh, and, you know, said this is not happening. Now, that but that pushes China closer to its dependence on China. And this is where we're seeing, you know, the long term effects of the conflict in uh, in eastern Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, uh, and Ukraine specifically, is going to have ripple effects in other strategic competitions that the U.S. has with, for example, China. Mm -hmm. So it, the reliance on exporting natural gas to, to Europe has now been shifted uh, into this massive gas deal that was signed between China and Russia on the sidelines of the Olympics. Great point. And uh, again, just underscores the different relationships involved here as we uh, as we move through the phases you've outlined. Molly, thanks for joining me today.
Thank you. Molly Saltzko with the Sufan Group. Coming up, Moderna riding a three-month losing streak, Alibaba coming off its worst year ever, and Live Nation is in jeopardy of breaking a six-quarter winning streak. We'll break down all the action, the story, and the trade for these names reporting the results in earning ex- exchange. Plus, we'll speak with the CEO of Molson Coors about the Brewers' mixed quarter and the breakthrough it just made for the first time in a decade. It's also analyst day for Cummins, the industrial giant laying out the road ahead for the adoption of hydrogen energy. We'll speak with their CEO about that and their big bet on EV manufacturing. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get the view from a CEO about this crazy environment we're living through. Molson Coors is out with earnings this morning. They reported top-line growth for the first time in a decade. Sales were up 14% on volume and price gains, although it wasn't enough to outpace the 17% rise in product costs. The stock is up more than 5% today. For more, I'm joined by Gavin Hattersley. He's Molson Coors Beverage Company's CEO. Gavin, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me, Katie. I mean... I know I should probably get a comment on you about the quarter, but I'm really more interested in what you see coming down the pike this year. What's happening with price pressures? Are you going to be able to raise top line enough to offset that? What do you anticipate? Well, Kelly, thanks for having me on. Look, I mean, 2022, we also have a first. We've, we've issued guidance that we're going to grow both the top line and the bottom line, uh, which will be the first time we've done that in quite some, some time. And certainly we are experiencing input cost inflation, but at the same time, our business is as fundamentally sound as it's been since before the revitalization plan. Our, our brand portfolio is in, in, in very good shape. Whereas like our core brands uh, both grew top line um, last year, and uh, we are very excited about how those, those brands are positioned at the moment. Our, our, our move into the emerging growth uh, space uh, is ahead of our plan. We, we, we put a goal out there to get to a billion dollars in by the end of 2023, and we're actually ahead of that plan. And then uh, above premium with Seltzers and Blue Moon have been particularly strong as, as well. So that will certainly help our, our mix profile. So not only will we get frontline pricing, but we'll have strong uh, mix. And the cost savings program we put in place many years ago will also go some way to offsetting uh, the inflationary pressures that we're expecting. Is beer back or just are your beers back? Let me quote from MKM, which has a buy rating on your stock. They say Miller and Coors are outperforming Bud Light. Tenth and Blank, which I, I'm not even familiar with, is outperforming craft beers. 
And then the innovation you mentioned, like Blue Moon Sky. That's correct. Uh, yes, we are outperforming um, from a premium light point of view, and we have been outperforming Bud Light for, oh gosh, years and years and years, and it's, it, it is actually accelerating. Tenth and Black is uh, our craft uh, uh, company. It, it houses all our craft breweries. Uh, Lining Kugels is our biggest one there, and Summer Shandy is already starting to uh, take off in some of the southern parts of the country. It's not it's not summer where I am, but uh, but down south it's 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 taking off uh, off quite nicely. So yes, well, our, our portfolio is fundamentally very sound at the moment. So tell me about inflation. I mean, how difficult an environment is this as a CEO? While you do have some tailwinds working in your favor, have you ever seen anything like this having to pivot from supply chain sourcing problems now to the price pressures you're probably experiencing? Well, it's certainly the toughest it's been for a while. I, mean, I did live through some of the um, uh, high commodity prices in the in the early two thousands, particularly aluminum. So it's not a it's not a world I'm, I'm unused to. Uh, we have spent the last uh, two years making sure that we do everything that we can to make um, our supply chain as robust as it can be, and we've increased our inventories heading into this year by by a substantial amount. So we, we we're not expecting um, any any out of stocks. Uh, from a cost inflation point of view, we put in place a robust hedging program many years ago, and that's designed to take some of the volatility out of pricing, and uh, we're going to reap the benefits of that uh, in 2022. Wow. So you do have hedging, uh, which is helping you right now. I guess my final question mm -hmm. is how much more are we going to be paying for Miller and Coors and your products this year? Well, certainly our price increases are, are lower than uh, the headline inflation that you've seen, quite a bit lower, actually. Um, and it does vary by, by brand and by pack and, and by market, uh, Kelly. But uh, yes, we, we will be taking some price this year. couple percentage points or are we talking kind of 5 to 10 percent? No, no, no. We're talking the 3 to 5 percent range. All right. Well, I will keep my eyes out for that. Uh, Gavin Hattersley, thanks for your time today. It's great to have you. Thanks, Kelly. Molson Core CEO. Still ahead with three weeks to go until the big Fed meeting next month, where they're expected to raise rates for the first time since the pandemic. We'll look at whether a half point hike is still in play or not. But first, check out shares of Rackspace plunging and at one point on pace for their worst day ever. We'll tell you what's behind the drop next. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We've seen the Dow up 235. We've seen it down 210. And right now we're down 163, about half a percent. It's the outperformer. S&P down three quarters of 1%. NASDAQ down about 1.2%. And here are some of the movers this hour. The sports betting stocks soaring today, helped by Caesars posting a 63% jump in revenue year on year. Now DraftKings, which is up almost 10% today, is about 20% higher in just two weeks. The stock also on pace for its best day since March of 2021. Let's turn to Virgin Galactic, which is sharp 
sharply higher today on a smaller than expected loss. The shares, well, they're off the highs. They're up 6.5%. They still expect commercial passenger flight service by the end of the year. Tesla lower today and having a rough month, down about 15%. That would be its worst month since March 2020. And it's tracking for its third straight monthly decline, which would be its longest losing streak since May of 2019. Tesla down about 4.7% today. It's below $800 a share. And crypto's bouncing back somewhat with Bitcoin hovering around the 38,000 level. After yesterday's sell-off, it hit its lowest level in two weeks as Russia-Ukraine tensions weighed on the group. And finally, take a look at Rackspace. We mentioned the stock going into the break, down 16% right now on weaker-than-expected guidance and a couple of downgrades today. They've got deceleration in core revenue growth, with profit margin uncertainty, two of the big headwinds for RXT. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. The only officer charged for his involvement in the botched police raid that killed Breonna Taylor is standing trial. Brett Hankinson, now a former officer, is charged with three low-level felonies for shooting through Taylor's apartment and into the home of her neighbors. In opening statements, prosecutors told jurors that the case is not about the killing of Taylor or the decisions by police that led to the raid, but it is about Hankinson firing recklessly into Taylor's apartment. Ford is recalling more than 330,000 Mustangs for issues with their backup cameras. The recall covers some cars from the 2015 through the 2017 model years. Wiring problems could lead the cameras to go blank or show distorted images. And across England, heavy rainfall has flooded around 400 homes. Some areas there have been evacuated and more rain is expected later this week. And on the news tonight, Russia's financial shield. Will its reserves be enough to blunt financial sanctions from the West? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? Rahel, thanks so much. Still ahead, Alibaba down 56% from its 52-week high. It's set to report its slowest growth quarter ever. Moderna's off 72% from its highs, and there are questions about what's in its pipeline post-COVID. And then there's Live Nation, only off 9% from the highs, with pent-up demand for concerts taking center stage. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on all three names next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three names getting set to report. And let's kick things off with Alibaba today. They're reporting before the bell tomorrow morning. They've gotten crushed amid China's crackdown on domestic tech firms, down more than 50% over the past year. The street also expecting Alibaba's lowest year-on-year growth ever since listing in 2014. Here with the story on Alibaba is Dominic Chu, and Delano Sapporo is New Street Advisors founder and a CNBC contributor, and he's here to give us our trades today. Welcome, guys. Dom, let's start with you. All right. So, so, Kelly, I mean, to your point, I'll give you the numbers because it's probably a good idea to get an idea of what the expectations actually are. The consensus for earnings is around 16.23 yuan per share. That's about $2.57 U.S. dollars per share. The revenues are expected to be about 246.5 billion yuan, or roughly $39 billion. That's what's likely to show a continued kind of string of profit declines for Alibaba. But that's the smaller focus for investors in Alibaba, to your point. The elephant in the room is probably the biggest elephant that you could possibly have. That is the Chinese regulators slash Chinese government slash Chinese Communist Party, because the country has been targeting its mega tech and mega media companies for some time now about their influence, their power over key parts of society, their financial dealings and everything to that end. Now, Baba has not been immune to that souring sentiment. Would you believe it? 
if I told you that U.S. listed shares of Alibaba have now posted down days in each of the last nine quarterly earnings reports days. That's a pretty long losing streak. And the options market, Kelly, to your point, is estimating around an 8% swing in the stock up or down this time around. Hmm. So this is maybe not so much about the numbers, but I don't know what they can say that can maybe dissuade investors from wanting to say, hey, you know what, the Chinese government's still around and it's still going to be a problem. Dom, it's interesting to watch Charlie Munger so involved with the stock and you'd think maybe that itself would change the sentiment around it. But so far, it still trades heavy. It does. And, 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 but, but I cannot say it's just Alibaba, right? We, you and I both know that it's pretty much every Chinese tech firm that you can possibly think of out yeah. there. It could be Tencent. It could be JD. It could be Sina. You name it. And the Chinese government's going to have a heavy hand in all of this. But uh, to, to your point, I don't exactly know what any of these companies can actually say. Do they say, oh, we've met with regulators and we have an understanding, something to that effect? Maybe that would change sentiment, but that's not, I mean, it's very unlikely that that's going to happen anytime very soon. Delano, what's the trade here? Yeah, I think the trade for us has been to, you know, hold the small allocation we have. Obviously, Baba was a big winner during the height of the pandemic. And as Don pointed out, you know, especially when you look at the political regulatory framework, you know, overseas, that's the big reason why our allocation has not increased um, and won't increase for some time. I think, you know, we're seeing growth slowing, especially on the bottom line. That's obviously concerning. But, you know, the company is obviously one of the best in the market. We're talking about e-commerce. We're talking about their cloud platform. But, you know, for just for now, for us, we're looking at the framework and it's an opaque situation. We can't get a certain certain read on it. So we're not going to increase allocations to BABA at this time. All right. So you're not cutting it and running, but you're not loading up either. Uh, maybe this quarter will start no. to change sentiment and maybe not. We'll leave it there. Don, thank you very much. And let's turn to Moderna, which also reports before the bell tomorrow. It's down 45 percent just this year. It's 70 percent off its highs. A lot of disappointed investors. Lots of headwinds for them from declining COVID cases to some disappointing study results. And executives, including the CEO, have been selling off shares. Meg Terrell is here with the details for us. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, of course, the number one, number two, number three thing that everybody's going to be talking about tomorrow for Moderna is the future of the COVID vaccine. How the company sees that playing out through the rest of this year and beyond. Does this become an annual vaccine for everybody like the flu vaccine, for example? So that'll be number one to be listening for. Second, of course, is what else is happening uh, at Moderna? Of course, the pandemic has validated the mRNA approach to vaccines. And so flu and RSV are the next two respiratory viruses we've been hearing a lot about for Moderna. And we've been hearing some recent updates, just recently starting a phase three in RSV earlier this week, for example. Uh, that's a respiratory virus that affects both young children very badly and older people. So this is a trial in older folks. Uh, so listening for updates on those, Moderna, of course, has talked about ultimately combining flu, RSV, and COVID all into one shot. Will the results be strong enough for them to be able to do that. Finally, what does the rest of the pipeline look like? You know, moving beyond respiratory virus vaccines into treatment areas for things like cancer. Um, listening for any updates on that on the call. The whole idea with Moderna is what does it look like after this pandemic? And so every time we get a chance to hear management talk about that, that's what people listen for. Kelly. Yeah, that would be amazing, Delano. I mean, if they could come up with, my kids have had RSV, it's scary stuff. I don't even remember it being around when I was a kid, but now it's so common. But the investors seem to be saying they're skeptical about the prognosis for something like that or for something as significant as, a, as COVID to be following in their pipeline. What would you do with the stock here? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think so. We haven't owned it outright, you know, more than through ETFs as far as our healthcare exposure. Um, so I wouldn't be buying now because, as mentioned, we're looking for what's the product pipeline post-COVID. And from the CEOs and own admission, we're in the final stages more than likely of the pandemic, which is a great thing, um, obviously, for the health of our world. But, you know, from the standpoint for Moderna, which was a lot of the expectation demand was pulled forward for the COVID vaccine. Now we're trying to get a sense of what the company's like post COVID, and it looks like investors aren't really sure and very uncertain about what that product pipeline looks like. So we're staying out of the stock. I think it's best to look at the value for investors of how far it could drop before it becomes more attractive, because it has taken a little bit of a beating, and it may have a beating, uh, a little bit more of a beating to go further, Kelly. Yeah, it's down another 5% even today. So this has been a tough one. All right, Meg, thank you. Live Nation rounds things out for us. They report after the bell tonight. The stock is down only about 2% this year, which is some pretty good outperformance, actually. It was up 62% last year uh, as people anticipated the reopening. Julia Borston has got the story on this one. Julia? Well, the key thing for Live Nation is the outlook and this expectation of massive pent-up demand among people who want to go back to concerts and maybe want to see more concerts than they than they used to pre-pandemic. And then also this idea of a backlog of supply, so many artists who delayed their tours. Now, just looking at the actual numbers, the company's revenue is expected to grow 764% over $2 billion, and the company's loss is expected to decline from over $2 uh, in loss per share to 54 cents in a, in a loss per share this quarter. Now, there are a couple other things we're watching here. One is commentary on pricing, how much ticket prices have increased, and then also how much more are people spending when they are at those venues? Are they spending much more because they're out and about for the first time in a while? And another thing I'm really curious to hear about is any mention of blockchain or NFTs, different new Web3 things that Live Nation is looking at as it gets more people back into concerts this year. Yeah, and even though it's been a good performer, Delano, you've still got shorts like Jim Chanos out there saying it's way overvalued. I definitely don't think it's overvalued. So this is a reopening play that I wish I was in. Um, and I still think there's room for, for Live Nation to, to run. I think there's a couple of big catalysts. If you're looking at people getting, obviously, more comfortable being outside, that's a big thing. And also the increase in consumer sentiment and discretionary spending, uh, which was be, being mentioned, that that is still strong. Demand has increased, as Live Nation mentioned. And so their pricing was actually increased and doubled uh, from quarters prior because demand is still there. So I definitely think this is a stock that has more room to run, that have a very good stranglehold on the on the partnerships in different areas with artists um, on, on different platforms. I think this is a great, great play if investors aren't in the stock already. But you're not in the stock. And so if others should be in it, why not get in it yourself? Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely one thing. Our allocation hasn't been towards that. And we are looking to get into the stock. I think we're looking at the run that it's had. And if there's any pullbacks in the stock, especially after earnings, this is something where we would allocate capital to, Kelly. Gotcha. All right, Live Nation, down about 1% today. But again, it's been a relative stalwart lately. Guys, thanks. Delano Sapporo, Julia Borston with Live Nation, which reports after the bell today. Still ahead, we're exactly three weeks away from the next Fed decision, where they're expected to kick off a tightening cycle that could be longer and stronger than anything we've seen in the past decade. Will geopolitics derail that or not? We have the details next. And later, century-old power company Cummins is pushing its way to the cutting edge, saying hydrogen is the next big thing, the efforts behind creating more eco-friendly engines. And let's take a look at stocks right now as the indices head towards session lows across the board. The Nasdaq remains the worst performer, down 165. The Dow down 195. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody. Calls for the Fed to curb inflation are growing louder, as some economists warn they're behind the curve. In fact, minutes from interest rate meetings out yesterday showed directors at three regional Fed banks voted in January to hike by a quarter point, but they were overruled. My next guest says the Fed has a lot to do, especially following what he calls a terribly misguided approach to policy last year. Joining me now is Tom Porcelli. He's the chief U.S. economist at RBC. Tom, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Good it, to be with you. It's good to see you again. So tell me, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I, I hear the refrain, it yeah. sounds like you're a believer that they should have started tightening last year. So what should the Fed do now? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, and Kelly, I think that's the right, I mean, like, I don't think we need to relitigate the past. I mean, I, you know, we've been saying basically most of last year that the Fed needed to do something last year. But um, I think here we are this year. Um, and look, I, I think, you know, I think while you know, transitory was uh, <laughs> not the right word last year, um, and while I think that it's great that Powell keeps on saying that they want to be humble and, and et cetera this year, I think humble was actually necessary last year. I think this year they need patience um, because I think that there are a lot of risks on the horizon right now. I, I, I don't think that the backdrop actually needs a Fed to get very aggressive here. Um, so I know there's a lot of calls out there for the Fed to, you know, sort of go 50 here and there, certainly raise rates every meeting um, over the balance of this year. We think that the Fed should be much more tempered in their approach right now, given some of these risks out there. And so so let's just, and so well, what does tempered mean? We think that they should go 25 basis points in March, and then we think they should go four times in total over the balance of the year. So okay. basically once a quarter. Um, and so what are these risks? I think the risks are basically, look, we have a lower end consumer that has basically tapped out most of um, the, uh, the sort of the excess liquidity that they had in place. Um, we think that um, inflation is going to start the process of slowing down this year, which we think will take some of the pressure off of the Fed. Um, and so there's, there's all these sort of transition things that are happening right now that I just don't think um, uh, the backdrop but, necessarily warrants um, uh, an aggressive Fed at this point. So to me, I guess the, yeah. what doesn't make sense is this idea that they should have started sooner, except that they should go at slow right now. It feels like it should be one or the other. Either they are behind the curve and they need to catch up, or they're not because yeah, of all the, the sort of, great, because inflation's so peaking great, and, you know, lower end yeah. consumers are in, in bad shape and all that. It's a, it's a great question. And here's how you square that circle, although I don't think it's really squaring a circle. I think it's pretty straightforward. I think what happened last year and, and what we're seeing uh, as a result of, uh, uh, of that now is that inflation expectations have really lifted in a pretty significant way, right? Like this whole idea of, and, you know, not to worry about inflation. The reality was people were enduring inflation then. So I think I would be, again, the view is I'd be much more sympathetic to a Fed that actually started the process last year, all in the name of keeping inflation expectations much more anchored than they would have been. And, th and that's why I say I think last year would have been a much better approach to starting. So we also have, have this question about, you know, what the inflation picture is going to be. It's the thing that determines how many hikes and all the rest of it. Yeah. And I'm seeing more of the street turn hawkish. I mean, Goldman's notes really sound the alarm about this becoming a problem that is broad, that is going to have, you know, wage gains and wage pressures for quite some time, and that the yeah. Fed kind of shouldn't expect inflation to come back down to target, um, certainly in the next 12 months. Would you differ yep. with that? I do. So what I would say is I think what we need to keep in mind is we're, we're, we're going to transition this year. We're going to transition from good spending to services spending. And one of the things that one of the key things that has really driven inflation materially higher has actually been goods spending. 
Um, but we're going to transition, right? And, uh, and let's be clear. You know, we normally spend a lot more on services than we do on goods. But for all of the obvious reasons, right, the, the pandemic sort of punctuated this idea, we spent a heck of a lot more on goods than services. So as the sort of, you know, we sort of get back to sort of more, uh, some semblance of normal, as we get into the endemic phase of, of COVID, what's going to wind up happening is that transition is now going to take place. You're going to go from goods to services spending. There is a mountain of inventories in the goods space right now. I mean, I know a lot of people love to, uh, they've been highlighting sort of Home Depot over the course of the last 24 hours. They highlight all those, this, this big uh, lifted inventories. But if you just look at the economic data, there's been a mountain of retail inventories for the last couple of months now. Uh, and it's something we've been highlighting. So if you have this transition where people are shifting away from goods to services spending, all in the context of a lot of inventory that's sitting out there, you can actually see goods prices that actually fall pretty abruptly. And I think much more abruptly than, than, than people uh, appreciate. And I think that that's going to be the thing that really sort of allows inflation hmm. to slow down as the year progresses. Very interesting argument, Tom. A great to hear from you today. We really appreciate it. Hope to check back in soon. Thanks, Kelly. Tom Porcelli with RBC Capital Markets. All right, up next, despite today's gains on strong earnings and a guidance hike, this stock could still use some improvement this year. It's down nearly 16%. We'll hear from the CEO next. Remember, you can catch our show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. While you're there, check out Conversations with Kelly. I also record my newsletters if you want to hear them that way. Just search CNBC The Exchange on any podcast platform. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Time for some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. And today we're checking on shares of Lowe's, holding on to gains up about 3% after reporting an earnings beat. The retailer also raising full-year guidance despite supply bottlenecks and higher costs. CEO Marvin Ellison also shrugged off interest rate concerns on Squawk Box. There is not a direct correlation between rising interest rates uh, and economic headwind for the home improvement market. If there are other positive economic indicators in the macro and we feel like the home improvement macro indicators as i mentioned earlier are very strong and we think they're going to persist beyond 2022 and today's move higher in the shares could encourage some lows investors after home depot saw their biggest post earnings decline yesterday since 2002 both stocks are off to their worst worst start to the year in more than a decade, down 15 and 25%. Coming up, you can find a Cummins engine in everything from ag equipment to boats to school buses. We'll talk to the CEO about the steps the company's taking to go green and why electricity isn't the only answer. That's next. Welcome back from the engines that power Dodge Ram trucks, fishing boats, and home generators to low emission distribution systems. Cummins has developed power sources of all shapes and sizes for more than 100 years. And now it's making the expensive transition from old fuel engines like diesel to new ones using hydrogen fuel cells and electric batteries. Joining me now fresh from the company's investor day is Tom Leinbarger. He is the chairman and CEO of Cummins. It's great to have you here. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Kelly. How, I mean, is this stuff like a five or 10 year plan or are we going to see you guys doing, you know, fuel cells and that kind of thing like right now or in the months to come? It's actually both. Uh, we have applications today for fuel cells and battery electric vehicle powertrains. And then we have a lot of work to do to make those time technologies viable for other applications. The, the, the largest volume applications, commercial trucks and things like that, I think are still a few years away. But the, there are a number of applications. You see them out on the road today, school buses, 
transit buses, trains today using both fuel cells and battery electric vehicle powertrains. Sure. And I mean, typically these larger vehicles have been a trickier thing to take uh, into batteries because of their size. So fuel cells obviously holds a, a lot of promise there. It makes sense of her company like yours to be going in that direction. But there's a lot of companies that are trying to make this transition and investors, some love it, some are a little uncomfortable. You know, talk through kind of capital and where that's going to be deployed between the business that's bringing in the cash and the business that you see as the future. It's a, it, it's a really interesting and important problem. Right now, climate change is the existential crisis of our time as leaders. We need to address clim the, the climate-contributing uh, cl climate gases that come from burning fuel. Commercial industrial vehicles burn fuel, a lot of it, and therefore contribute to climate change. So making our way through this transition is critical. It's critical for our way of life. It's critical for our children and our grandchildren. So we have to make moves to do that. Today, though, for many applications, it's just not economically viable. You may want to do it, but there isn't a simple way to do it. And that takes three things. We need infrastructure, so you need to be, have a place to charge or a place to fuel up with these new technologies. Second is it takes the technology development to make these vehicles work. That's the fuel cells and, power, and, and battery electric powertrains getting lower cost and, and, and more robust. And then third is it's the the investment to get from this place to that place. And all aspects of the economy and government need to work together to make this transition. Yeah. And we need to start yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Uh, so let me ask you about this. Industrial stocks are often a favorite of investors as we enter a rate cycle. Um, we hear from a lot who think they're undervalued right now in a good place to be. Can you just give me a, a, the pulse from what are your clients saying? How, how do you perceive the strength of the economy in the industrial sector right now? Right now, our customers are really busy. They are selling a lot of trucks. They could sell more if they could get enough components. So they are definitely looking for ways to build capacity and add production, um, more production today. Their demand exceeds their ability to produce. Uh, you know a lot about the chip shortages and other issues. So right now, they could make, they could, if they could make more, they could sell more. So economy's strong. There's more demand. We're really in supply constraint situation rather than a demand constraint situation. Yeah. And what about inflation, both the pressures that you're experiencing as a company and the price hikes that your uh, customers should expect? We b both are happening. Uh, we're seeing inflation in all of our uh, components of cost, labor, um, material costs, et cetera. We're passing some of those on to our customers, some of those costs they're passing on to their customers. So we definitely see inflation throughout the economy, uh, but demand remains strong despite that inflation. Is inflation peaking? Don't know. It's hard to say. <laughs> I, mean, I, will, I, will, I wish I knew the answer to that, Kelly, but I don't. I thought maybe you would have a better sense. Uh, where it's the, the million dollar question we're all trying to figure out. Uh, we really Indeed. appreciate it, Tom. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure talking with you. Tom Leinbarger is the CEO of Cummins. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.